seated. Good morning. My pleasure to be with you again. I guess it's been approximately a year, which may, maybe that's my shelf life for Eric bringing me back. That's okay. Um, the passage that you have printed for you in your order of worship is a fine passage. It is uh, not what I'm preaching from, however, this morning. And that I gave Eric that passage several weeks ago when he was asking to put together the orders of worship. And since that time, I have changed what I'm doing. So I, don't, I hope that doesn't disappoint, but I do want everyone to be on the same page. And that page is 907. If you're using the uh, Pew Bibles, that is John chapter 21. I know that you guys are in a series in John, and um, Joe said that y'all are getting very granular in chapter 8 and 9. So I'm going to leap us forward into chapter 21. Uh, maybe in anticipation of, of the better word that Eric will bring in months, if not years ahead. So, here is God's word, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom uh, Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Peter, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples uh, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there, there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask them, well, who are you? They knew it was the Lord and Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved 
Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this is and this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This ends the reading of God's word. Let me pray and ask for his help in these next few minutes. <coughs> Lord, we do pray that this text, this story, would um, engage us by the power of the Spirit, that there is uh, something divine of your presence here. Uh, even as we hear this, even as we consider what's going on here with the disciples, I pray that you would help us by the working of your Holy Spirit to, to see ourselves in this passage, to see, to gauge even our own responses to you as the one who says, follow me. Help me to be your herald this morning, that I wouldn't be a distraction, that um, I would be both your mouthpiece this morning, even as the word of God goes out in this sermon, but I would also hear and respond and receive as well. Uh, we, I want to have that same meal that you laid out and lay out for your disciples this morning. And we pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Love, actually. Sleepless in Seattle. Notting Hill. Four Weddings and a Funeral. All of these are classic movies, at least in my estimation. They are classic romance movies. Rom-com is maybe the designation. Um, and I mention them because I really like some of these movies a lot. I'm not embarrassed to say that. But as you know, if you like that genre of movie, if you like romantic comedies, the critique of those movies, uh, especially as they, as they picture relationships, is that they do what? I only show you a small portion of the story. They focus on the getting together, the, the meet cute, the overcoming of the initial obstacles, the, the misunderstandings, the tension. You just, right when you think it's going to break off, they actually finally get together. You get to marry Hugh Grant. End of the story. All good. Movie ends. Credits roll. But there's nothing about being together about the next steps in the relationship, what you do now, how you, how you move on once you've gotten out of that initial uh, chemistry strong stage. And I mention those because I think at times as Christians, and this sermon really is primarily for Christians this morning, I think that we think of the Christian faith or we even experience the Christian faith like those romantic movies. Because you think about it, the Gospels, and we're reading the Gospels this morning, they picture this compelling story of Jesus coming for his people, and there's opposition, and there's misunderstanding, and then there's this buildup, and just when you think it's over, it's not going to work out, what happens? Christ overcomes sin, death, and the evil one, and there is victory in Jesus. The Lord has won a people for himself, and we have that forgiveness, that resurrection hope, that happily ever after on that Sunday resurrection morning. But then what happens? You've got to live on Monday. 
Now what? Now what do we do after the resurrection? How are we supposed to live? What if I miss what the Christian life is supposed to be about? This isn't just a 21st century problem, a 21st century question. It's not just a, a contemporary situation that happens because of our historical distance from the New Testament and from the Gospels. Hopefully you recognize what we're seeing in John chapter 21, because what we see is another kind of crisis, even a misfire on the part of the disciples about what do we do after the resurrection? And you see, this, this, everything that we've read is after they had um, seen Jesus, and they're not re- after the resurrection. They're not really sure what it means for them. Because look how it starts, verse 1. After this, it means after Jesus had appeared to the disciples, they, after they had had, Jesus had had this particular engagement with Thomas, right? You want to believe that I'm here? You can put my finger in the wound, right? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to trust? All after this, after all of that had happened. So the most mind-melting, epical event in their lives, really in the history of the world, had happened that God had raised his Savior. God had raised their friend from the dead, and he had personally, in the flesh, encountered him. But now these dudes are not loading up their donkeys to hit the road to talk about it. They are not getting out their pen and parchment to, to write stuff down and send it out. What are they doing? They're at the lake, maybe with a cooler of beer, we don't know, getting their boat ready to go fishing. Why are they going fishing? Probably one of several reasons. They've maybe, and and maybe these reasons will resonate with you as you think about your situation in following Christ. Maybe they have just kind of internalized this encounter with the resurrected Christ. They have made it spiritual, okay, and personal, but it just kind of stays in here. It's just kind of in their head. So they go back to what they experience as their regular life or what's happened is they have and it seems so incredible to say this but maybe they've already grown cold yeah they've seen the resurrection it's happened that was a a great mountaintop experience but i don't know it's just the, the fires of faith don't burn as bright now um and they've started to cool And the embers only just barely glow, but the fire doesn't burn bright. The fire of faith just doesn't burn bright. Or maybe they're just confused. They're just, they feel stuck. They're not sure what it looks like to follow Jesus without him there with them physically, because that's always been their experience. So they just go back to what is routine. They go back to what is safe. Now think about it, Jesus had called them to do what? Be fishers of men, not bass masters on Lake Tiberias, but that's what they did. They were headed in the wrong direction. They were not moving forward with the good news. Do you see yourself in these disciples? Do you feel their stuckness in the Christian life, their con? Fusion, maybe their awkwardness at what to do next to follow Jesus? Or maybe do you see this in others around you? Maybe these other people who are here at Ascension, or maybe those who are not here this morning. 
or you see it in people, maybe even in your own household, and maybe you're thinking, if, if only these people would get serious about Christ, if they would quit messing around, then we could really get something done. What should you think about yourself if you're stuck, not sure what to do? What should you think about others? You know who Brene Brown is, uh, uh, teaches at the University of Houston, writes a lot of books on uh, issues of empathy. And she says the, this, that empathy, thinking about our own response, empathy is the antidote to shame. And that the two most powerful words when we are in struggle are me too. Me too. And while we're not getting left off the hook here in this fishing story, see that in, in the Christian call to faith, there is a very broad spectrum of what your Christian life might look like at any given time. And that other folks that you deal with might be somewhere else on that continuum of confusion, of misguidedness, and being stuck. And so what that means as you think about your life and the lives of other Christians is that this. You can be in Christ, but a bit cold in Christ. That you can be in Christ, but you might be a little bit too inward, a little bit too private in your walk with the Lord. And you might not, and you can be in Christ, but you might not even be sure what to do next, so you just default into old habits. You're like the person who's won the Megabucks lottery or, the, 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 or you know, whatever the big lottery is, and you've won hundreds of millions of dollars and you don't even know what to do with it, so what do you do? You just go to work the next day. You don't say anything and you just kind of plug in along. But what's the right response, both in terms of what we receive and what we give to others? Have mercy. To show compassion. And maybe in your case, in your stuckness, in your awkwardness, in, in, in your inertia in the Christian life, a willingness to receive grace. Now, why is that possible? Why is this just not some peace, love, dope? Oh, there's the pastor talking about all that grace stuff again. Why is patience the right response? Even patience toward yourself and, and, and where you are in your walk. Where do we get that? Get it from the passage. Look at what happens. Jesus shows up. All right? And he doesn't threaten them. He sees that they're out on the boat. He sees that they're fishing, not where they're supposed to be, probably. He doesn't come out there and say, on, on, on the shore, right, and say, guys, if you don't get with the program and start spreading the word and get on that donkey and ride and, start, and get out your pen and write and start building this church, it's going to be trouble, right? You are messing up. I'm going to quit. Yeah, you're mine, but I'm not really going to have that same kind of love for you that I had when I was first with you. Uh, and I might even just start casting some of you folks out. But that's how we think about Jesus, isn't it? That his relationship is, at the end of the day, tra transactional. He does something for us, but he only expects that you do something for him in return. But that is not how God works. That is not who God is, and that is not how grace works. You see, I am convinced that you and I are not convinced 
that Jesus actually is patient, that he actually is gracious with us on the other side of the resurrection. Yeah, before the resurrection, absolutely. On the other side, not so much. And I think we're reluctant to believe that, especially when we feel a little bit stalled out in the Christian life, when we've gone the wrong direction, when we've responded to him lightly. We just don't think he loved us. And I want to tell you, that's garbage. That is a lie. That is not the God of Scripture. You know John Owen, this very strange, exotic, Puritan guy, um, he kind of dressed like Prince, right? He had these big leather thigh-high boots and these very dandy kind of things, but he's also this powerful theologian. Uh, Puritan, right? Hardcore. He said this, The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. Would you ever think that the worst thing that you could do to God is to believe that he doesn't love you. That is exactly true because he's given all of himself to show that he loves you. But also notice this. Jesus has been preparing these guys and he's preparing us as well to be fishers of men, to be advocates, to be allies in the kingdom. So what does he do? He gives them another demonstrable lesson in the practice of the kingdom of God. He gives them. All right. They're out on the boat. They're fishing. He gives them and they haven't been successful. What does he do? He comes in and he gives them a full harvest of fish from the sea. And notice, and this is almost another sermon for another time. They can't do what they're doing without Jesus. And while he welcomes their catch, he doesn't actually need it. He's already got food and things laid out. Oh, yeah. Jesus, what has he done for them? He doesn't scold them. In fact, he's on the beach waiting and he has prepared a meal for them to enjoy the fish brought up from the lake. He's already got fish there. He lets them bring their stuff there. And there's this warm fire to comfort them. He gives them his presence, his hospitality, his fullness, his grace. Jesus is patient and gracious with you where you are. He's committed to that. But here's the even better news. He's present, he's engaged, but he doesn't just leave you where you are. Now, at this point in the story, you might think that Jesus would do what? Turn to Thomas and say, dude, didn't we just go over this like a chapter ago, right? The finger in the side and, you know, what's going on there? But he doesn't even turn to Thomas. And Thomas is there, as we see at the beginning of the passage. Instead, he turns to Peter, our friend Peter, the chief apostle. And then he starts his lesson. In this conversation with Peter, interestingly, interestingly enough, is framed by stuff that has already happened in John's gospel. You remember? Well, you don't remember because Eric hasn't gotten there yet. I'm not picking on Eric about that. Um, John chapter 13, what does Peter say? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. He makes this bold declaration. I will die for you, Jesus. But then we get to John chapter 18. What happens? Well, Jesus has been hauled off into custody accused of being this insurrectionist. And uh, there's a, a little servant girl that says to Peter, recognizes that he's been palling around with Jesus and said, aren't you also one of this guy's disciples? And what did Peter say? I am not. Don't know the man. Peter continues to hang out, goes to the 
servants where the servants are standing, the officers outside of where Jesus is kept, and there's what? Turns out there's actually a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around warming themselves, and Peter also, it says, was standing around and warming himself. Now, Peter, who had initially been the most on-fire guy for the Lord, became ultimately the first heretic in the church, the first follower to bail out on Christ and says he even denies him with curses. Jesus is bringing this up, but he doesn't let those last words, and you see how he's setting up the scene, charcoal, fish, denials, affirmations. It's like there's this scene is being restarted, but Jesus doesn't let the last words from Peter be his mistakes, his denials. Rather, what does he hone in on? His affirmations, what he affirms. Because in a sense, Jesus revisits this time in Peter's life and enters into it to show him what? That love overcomes, that his love overcomes Peter's weak love. It's not a shaming situation that we see, but rather mercy and patience on the part of Christ. And that this is what overcomes fear and doubt and failure. Your failure, too. So for Peter... And for us, Jesus goes where our pain is. It's almost like, uh, you know, Peter is like the, the, the guy in the dentist chair who's squirming, right, when the dentist comes in to deal with where the toothache is, where the pain is. And he's trying to avoid this sensitive place, but Jesus, being a good physician, just goes right to it. He takes Peter away from the others and asks Peter, not because he doesn't know, obviously he knows, but because he's restoring him, he says, do you love me? Christ doesn't pass over Peter's failure in silence. He enters into it, just like he enters into ours. Even more so, Jesus replies not with, yeah, that's all right, I, I know you love you, but rather with what? He shows his love. He gives him a command, a fresh challenge, a restoration. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, care for them. You see, Jesus is trusting Peter to get back to fruitful work and to turn his true but let's admit it wobbly love for Jesus to good account. Jesus is sharing his own work, his own ministry with Peter who had been an abject failure. Do you know he does that with you? That same invitation stands. And this is the key. This is what you should get if anything that if you are going to do as a Christian one single solitary thing is a follower and servant of Jesus this is what it's built on that deep inside of you there is a love for Jesus and though goodness knows that you've let him down you've failed Jesus wants you to find that love to see that love again and to give you a chance to express it and to give you new work to do. He never leaves any of us on the sidelines. Why? Because Jesus himself is the good shepherd. He tends to his lambs. And this is how he does it. He brings us alongside. And, and, and the lambs, the sheep, that's us. We are all his. Now you might think, oh, this is just a passage talking about pastors, teaching, elders, uh, eldering, right? But this application to feed and to tend is not just for pastors who serve with God's word. It is for all Christians 
Because you see, in Christ, you bear witness to the resurrection by caring for those people. And if you're a Christian, you have people that Jesus has entrusted to your care. And you love Jesus by caring for them. So that means what? In Christ, parents care for children. In some cases, it also means what? Children care for your parents. Yes, it does mean pastors and elders care for the congregation, but it also means reciprocally that the congregation should care for the elders and the pastors. They're screwed up and need Christ too, right? It means bosses care for your workers. Workers care for your clients. And the lambs, who are the lambs? That would be the weakest of those among us. Are those who need care, those who are weak, those who are sick, those who are in crisis pregnancy, those who need a home, those who are refugees, those who are lonely and scorned and friendless, all of us in Christ are responsible for them and have the privilege of looking out for them. Do you hear that story? This really happened earlier this summer in Panama City Beach where there was a family, I can't remember, it was four or five people and they were out uh, just a few feet off of shore, and they got caught in a rip current. And a rip current is just this current that's very strong, and it pulls you faster than you could, than Michael Phelps could swim. There's just no way you could swim against it and get back out. And it just pulls, pulls, pulls. But what happens typically is people just try and swim against it, and they get tired, and they go to the bottom and drown. And the family was just getting pulled out, and they were getting tired. They couldn't really just keep treading water anymore and they were far enough out uh, that the the um, lifeguards just couldn't get to them there was people yelling and they were it, it was just horrifying people on the shore were watching what looked like a whole family was about to drown but did you hear what happened the people on shore knowing that they had to get in get to the family who were caught in the middle of this rip current they started linking arms with one another and they built this human chain out to the family, and one by one, they pulled them back in and saved everyone on the family. Even when the lifeguards and the police couldn't get to them, the people on the beach built this human chain. And in a sense, that is exactly what we are doing with one another, that we are linking arms to save and to help and to take care of and to feed and shepherd one another. And we can do that because there is this chain of divine persons, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have, as one person, have linked themselves to rescue and redeem you out of the riptide of your own inwardness, out of the riptide of your own hell, of hell, to redeem you and to rescue you. So great is his love that we can share in that. How great is God's love? Augustine, all right? He's not in the Bible, but he's pretty close. He says this, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Would you ever dare to think that God loves you like that? That he loves you as if there is only you? But then the glory is, you obviously know, it's more than just you. But so particular is God's love that it spreads out to a world of people. And he comes alongside of us. He comes to us and calls us to share in that same love for others. So because you have been loved in Christ, because you have known weakness, because you have been healed, you can step in and help for Christ's sake. 
Now, I told you about romantic comedies and their weaknesses, but I do want to commend one to you. Um, and it's, of course, got Hugh Grant in it, because if it's going to qualify as a good romantic comedy, it has to have Will, uh, Hugh Grant in it. But it's called About a Boy. And he, Hugh Grant plays a character called Will, who's just very selfish. And the, the great thing about this uh, romantic comedy is that it's really more than just about romantic love. It's also about friendship and the whole network of what love looks like in a, a host of different relationships. But at the beginning of the movie, uh, Will, who is, who's, who's well off and he's just very inward and uh, just takes care of himself, kept saying, all men are islands. And he's an island. He's just isolated unto himself. He's going to do his thing. He's going to take, he's, he's rich, so he can just kind of do what he wants um, and not going to build, have, ha, have relationships that are too close. But toward the end, there's a change, and you just got to watch the movie to see why it changes. Um, but he says, all men are islands, and what's more, this is the time to be one. This is an island age. Every man is an island, and I stand by that. But, all right, and this is after the change, but clearly some men are part of island chains below the surface of the ocean they're actually connected friends we are actually connected to one another and the way we are connected is through christ none of us are islands none of us are left alone to our own devices none of us are shelved or sidelined in christ jesus stands on the shore and he prepares a meal for you let's pray heavenly father would you de indeed now even as we have encountered you, even as you have this very morning and just as powerfully as you did with the disciples 2,000 years ago, you stand on the shore in this place and you lay out a meal for us. And it's not because we have something you want or need that's going to make you complete, but rather in the fullness of who you are, because you were complete, you showed a love a love that looked like a sacrificial death to cover our sins, a love that looked like the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that we might share in your very life, that we might have your mind, that we might have your peace, that we might have one another as brothers and sisters. We can't conjure that. We can't squint our eyebrows and make it happen any more than what you have already done for us 2,000 years ago in your life, death, and resurrection and the pouring out of your Spirit. And so we want to share in that now. I pray that you would give us the gift of repentance, the gift of joy, the gift of hope that only comes through you. And it's in your name we pray and for your sake. Amen.